Hello and welcome to our first bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week, featuring some of our favorite articles from the last two years. This episode's theme is criminals who are bad at their jobs, and we hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. All right. Well, this last one is one of those Mad Libs headlines that just gets better with every word. All right. <gasps> so so prepare yourself here. The title is Ponzi Scheme Suspect Uses Underwater mm-hmm. Scooter to Flee okay. FBI. Wow. And- <laughs> I'm in. I'm hooked. I got to hear more. That's epic. Yeah. So Matthew Piercy is an investment banker, sort of who was accused in a federal (laughs) indictment this year of running a Ponzi scheme that bilked investors out of approximately $35 million since 2016. The way he pulled it off is pretty typical. One of his companies, Family Wealth Legacy, solicited investments in securities, cryptocurrency mining, and life insurance, while the other one, Zala Financial, raised funds through transactions that were, according to the Justice Department, typically styled as loans offering a fixed return, with the company's returns purportedly generated through algorithmic trading. And basically, it was one of those I've cracked the system claims, you know, like Moneyball, but for investing, which is how he justified his unreasonably high rate of return for his investors, because that's where these Ponzi schemes always get caught, is nobody makes money every time. But these guys are too dumb, and they're like, I do, and then they get caught. But so, of course, he hadn't cracked the system. He was just using the age old technique of paying off old money with new money. And like all Ponzi schemes, it eventually caught up with him. Piercy was facing 31 felony counts, including wire fraud, mail fraud, witness tampering and money laundering. Each count carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. But when authorities went to arrest him on Monday, he decided not to go quietly. Instead, he jumped in his truck and led authorities on a chase through the streets of Palo Cedro, California, until he got to the edge of Shasta Lake, which is the largest man-made reservoir in California. At that point, he hopped out of his truck, removed something from the back bed, and waded into the frigid water in his street clothes, disappearing under the surface. (laughs) (laughs) That something was a red Yamaha 350LI underwater sea scooter, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's got a little seat and some handlebars, and it's got this big enclosed propeller at the back that can push riders through the water at a top speed of about four miles per hour, which is, you know. <laughs> what a getaway. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you got to admire the guts of this guy. I mean, I'm sure in his mind, this was like the perfect James Bond escape. On the other hand, he's an idiot because it's a lake. <laughs> it's a lake. It's yeah. landlocked. Yeah. Like, it's not like he went out to sea. There's a limited area of shoreline and he can't stay under there forever. And uh, sure oh. enough, federal agents just waited patiently until Piercy surfaced again about 25 minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he waded ashore and they, he was arrested. They noted it really wasn't too hard. They just watched where the bubbles went. Yeah. And in fact, when he finally gave up and waded ashore, agents had already called Piercy's wife to bring him some dry clothes for the arrest. 
So, <laughs> so thoughtful. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, we got this guy in a lake. Just bring him some clothes because he's going to be cold. Like, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Oh, my so, gosh. And and the kicker to the whole article really is the photo. It's just, you know, his formal headshot. But I genuinely laughed out loud when his face rolled on the screen because he looks exactly like the kind of popped collar prep school coke addict who would think that this was a brilliant idea. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. He honestly, he looks a little bit like the fire festival guy. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's like <laughs> something genetic about being bad at scams. Like maybe there's a gene that makes your face look funny and also makes you really dumb about <laughs> getting away yeah. with fraud. I, I'm going to hazard a guess and say it has something to do with attaching itself to a Y chromosome. I know not all Y chromosomes. Right, but right, right. Overwhelmingly. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. The other thing is, he had this in the back of his truck already. Oh, this so, was planned. Yeah. There, there was forethought in all. Yeah. He had the, he dipped into his significant stolen funds <laughs> right. to acquire this That's underwater right. scooter. He had time to plan, and this is what he came up with. Like Amazing. <laughs> so Amazing. So on brand. That's right. Well, we, uh, we wish him well, but not too well. He still deserves to no, go to jail. I don't wish him well. No, not at all. <laughs> not all podcasters. <laughs> next link. Next link. This next link comes from Vice in their money section by Jack Dutton. And it's an interview that is titled, This Australian bartender found an ATM glitch and blew $1.6 million. Oh, that's a lot. Yes, absolutely. The guy's name is Dan Saunders, and they asked him to kind of describe the loophole and his five months of partying like a millionaire. It's an extract Jeez. from a podcast they're doing on Spotify. He threw lavish parties. He chartered private jets. He paid off his friend's university fees until the police caught up with him. Right? How, so yeah, they how kinda... did they not get him earlier? Like, all those things have cameras in front of him. I would think after the first <laughs> morning where they go and they say, whoa, somebody withdrew the entire con contents of the ATM. Let's review the footage and see who did that. <laughs> yeah, this was in like 2011. So, okay. you know, I'd like to think that they did have, you know, cameras and securities and stuff like that. But it's a pretty wild ride. So this is what he said. So I was out for the night trying to get a balance on my account, but it kept giving the message balance unavailable at this time. So he transferred $200 from his credit account to his savings and it said transaction canceled and spat the card out. I thought that was super odd. So I decided to try and get $200 out of my savings account just to see what would happen. It gave me the money. So I went back to the bar and continued drinking. But after I left the bar, I was walking home past the same ATM. I'd been thinking about how odd the whole thing was. So I put the card in again and started playing around. I transferred another $200 and got the money out then 500 then 600 just to see what would happen. I think it was a combination of being tipsy and bored, but I just pushed the envelope, tried again and again. It was like a magic trick. So he called to get a balance on his savings account, which was now $2,000 in debt. There was a lag between what the ATM gave him and what his bank balance was, which meant whatever he spent, he could cover by doing a simple transfer every night between his credit account and his savings. He could, quote, create the money by doing a transfer between one and three in the morning which is when he realized ATMs go offline. Oh. So he basically just had to stay one day ahead. So the first day he spent $2,000, but the second day he transferred $4,000 to make sure the balance didn't stay negative. The transfer at night would go through, then reverse one day later. But if he stayed ahead of the reversal by doing another one and another one and another one, he tricked the system into thinking he had millions. So it was a Ponzi yeah. scheme, but he was the only person <laughs> <laughs> exactly. getting more and more money from himself. 
Exactly. And it was something where it would just say, you know, transaction canceled. So they would sort of like remove the proof that this thing had happened, but the results still remained. And so he was able to just continue doing this. And so he goes into how this, you know, ethically, did he have any qualms about spending, quote, someone else's money? He's like, you know, it was just numbers on a screen. It never really felt real. And basically, the bank failed to notice for four and a half months. It started kind of getting to him, you know, he started having panic attacks and nightmares. And he was was talking to his parents who were like, you know, this is bad. And he's like, ah, whatever. And then he started talking to his therapist because his anxiety got so yeah. bad. And they were like, you know, if you turn yourself in, you can actually feel better about this, at least sleep at night. Yeah. He had thought about like maybe just taking the money and going to Spain, but he didn't want to leave his family or his friends without any trace. And mm-hmm. so he just stopped doing the transfers. He contacted the bank in June and July of 2011. They told me, quote, it's a police matter now. We can't talk to you. They will uh-huh. contact you. You're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And And that was it. All he was going to say was that he had 80 grand in a Hilton laundry bag and they were welcome to it. Then I heard nothing for two years. Nothing happened for two years after they realized that something had happened. It was always in the back of his mind. He couldn't really move on with his life. The police finally got involved because he did have to turn himself in, even though the bank was aware of it, but nothing was happening. And he had so much guilt and anxiety. The therapist said, you know, turn yourself in. And the way he turned himself in was he did three print interviews and an appearance on national TV (laughs) to really be taken seriously because nobody was really taking him seriously about this being a thing that needed to be resolved for him. (laughs) Well, and I can imagine it's like a lot of things where corporately they're like, we don't actually want to admit that this was possible. That somebody was able to do this. It's honestly maybe even financially better for us to just keep quiet about this. Maybe they never even would have come after him if he hadn't decided to go public. Exactly. I think that's one point that at least internally at the bank where they were like, it's going to take a while to fix and solve this kind of transactional bug Mm -hmm. or the off hours or whatever. And so they probably were doing something on the background. But basically the way the court case played out when it finally happened, he thought he was going to get totally thrown under the bus. But the court was weird because, quote, no one actually understood what I did. Not the judge, <laughs> not the prosecutor. So it was very odd. There were many blank looks. The bank provided minimal evidence. So it was really just a case of bad Dan, cop whack, and that's it. I pled guilty, got one year inside. Then I was allowed out on an 18-month community corrections order. Oh, he didn't even have to pay the money back. They're just like, all right, go do your time and you're done? I mean, kind of a light slap on the wrist. Wow. I mean, obviously, you're going to have some kind of felony record or whatever else. Right. Maybe he was a felony. <laughs> it didn't really even say what the supercharge was. And it's Australia, and I'm not really sure how their court right. system works either. Right. But, you know, if you had a chance to party like a millionaire for five months and then spend a little over a year or a year and a half in prison... I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and almost, I mean, the two years of anxiety, I think, would be almost worse than the one year in prison. You know, you do your one year. It's like, you know, it's going to end and then your conscience is clear. But to be told by a bank, this is a police matter and then nothing happens for For two two years. That's crazy. I would have I would have absolutely gone insane. I could not have dealt with that. Yep. Yep. Well, at least, you know, he's learned his lesson, it sounds like. (laughs) And if he's explaining the trick, they must have fixed it by now because there's no way they would be putting instructions on how to do this out there. (laughs) Exactly. His final quote in this interview is pretty great. The interviewer asked, what's it been like going back to working in a bar earning $22 (laughs) an hour after being a millionaire? And he said, I learned that faced with temptation, it's easy to lose your true self, but I'm slowly getting back to normal. I felt like Macaulay Culkin after Home Alone 2, like you're hot one minute and then you're sort of not the next and it's a bit hard to take. There was definitely a hangover time though when I thought, geez, maybe I should have gone to Spain after all. What a, <laughs> what a weird analogy. 
analogy. It's like, oh, let's philosophically reminisce. Oh, no, it's like Macaulay Culkin. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> and not only Macaulay Culkin, but from Home Alone 2. That's not, right. Very not specifically. Home Alone 1, but... <laughs> I feel like this guy has watched that movie a lot of times. <laughs> you know, I, I think you might be on to something there. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, what do you guys know about the invention of Flamin' Hot Cheetos? Oh. Mm, I know that whoever came up with that spice mix really needs to package it as a standalone item so I can put it over popcorn, right. uh, cauliflower rice, literally anything. <laughs> well, there has been a somewhat famous story circulating on the internet for a few years, and that is that Richard Montañez, a humble Frito-Lay janitor, watched an inspirational video from CEO Roger Enrico about how every employee should act like owners and take charge of new ideas. So Montañez marched into Enrico's office and said, the Hispanic community is being ignored. We like hot and spicy stuff. And here I've made you a sample of regular Cheetos that I've covered in my personal spice blend. The CEO says, OMG, these are amazing and calls a meeting of like 100 executives at the company's Rancho Cucamonga complex to hear Montañez pitch his idea. The product turns into a big hit. Montañez gets promoted and ultimately ends up as a marketing executive for the whole company. Okay. Wow. And it's admittedly compelling, right? It's got rags to riches. It's got multiculturalism, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. ingenuity of the common man. And aside from being very popular on the internet, it's also made Montañez a lot of money. Once his story Ooh. started going big, he retired in 2019 to focus full-time on speaking engagements, which pay between $10,000 and $50,000 each. He has a new memoir coming out next month from Penguin Random House, and there is a movie of his life story in the works set to be directed by Ava Longoria. Dang. Unfortunately, it's a lie. Oh, no. Uh. And very conclusively so. No. So initially, Montañez was telling this story in small speeches at like local business awards and philanthropic events, and he was doing it for about a decade before it went viral. So, you know, he's giving these speeches in like 2008, but he's talking about events that took place back in 1989. So there's really nobody still at the company by that point who mm -hmm. remembers otherwise. Mm -hmm. And he gets away with it for a long time. The story doesn't go viral until about 2018, at which point it appears in a blog post on Esquire.com where it's seen by Lynn Greenfeld, who says, hold up. I invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos and I can prove it. Oh, huh. the receipt. Yes. So at the time, back in 1989, she was a junior employee fresh out of her MBA program, and she was working in the single serve group, which was specifically responsible for these small bagged impulse buy items sold in mini marts and bodegas and basically anything that wasn't a grocery store. Okay. And one of the salesmen working the beat in the Chicago area told the marketing department that they were losing shelf space and getting hammered by these really small local brands that sold spicy stuff. He told marketing that they needed a spicy product, and the development project got assigned to Greenfeld. And multiple employees working there at the time have corroborated that Greenfeld came up with the name, she came up with the little chubby devil graphic, and in fact, <laughs> they were selling three products simultaneously. They had Flamin' Hot Cheetos, Flamin' Hot Fritos, and Flamin' Hot Lays. <gasps> All three products launched in August of 1990, and Frito-Lay has an officially registered trademark for Flamin' Hot established at that time. All of which is a problem for Montañez because his whole story doesn't even take place until 1992. Oh, dear. And in fact, Enrico, the CEO who he says inspired him, didn't even work for Frito-Lay when they filed their Flamin' Hot trademark in 1990. <sighs> oh, no. Now, there are some parts of Montañez's story that are true. 
He did start working for Frito-Lay as a janitor in the late 1970s, although he had been promoted a few times before 1992. And he really did call Enrico after the Act Like Owners video and say, we need to get more products aimed at the Hispanic market. And when all of this started coming out, Montaña sort of adjusted his story and was like, well, maybe there was some kind of existing spicy product line, but they changed the seasonings based on what I was pitching to Enrico. Mm. Except the corporate office of Frito-Lay has since released documents showing that the Flamin' Hot Spice Mixture was developed for them by McCormick Spices, and a sample was first delivered to Frito-Lay in December of 1989, and it's basically identical to what's used today. Oh, boy. So that's also a lie. Oh, goodness. <laughs> what Enrico did do was put Montañas on a new line of Hispanic-aimed products called Sabrositas. And the Sabrositas line did include Flamin' Hot Popcorn. So it does exist, Angie. You could get hey, it. Hey, okay, all right. But it used the existing seasoning to put it on a new product. Sure. They also had lime and chili-flavored Fritos, and a Dorito that was flavored kind of like a churro. It was sweet. And mm. these products did pretty well in the Los Angeles area, but they've since been discontinued. And, mm. you know, it's still a rags-to-riches success story. He really did start out as a janitor and move all the way up to marketing executive. And it seems like he did have some out-of-the-box ideas that helped the company along the way, but he did not invent Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Okay, so what does this mean for his upcoming autobiography yeah. and well, movie based on... <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, he keeps doubling down on his story in pretty terrible ways. <laughs> At okay. one point, he posted a picture to his Instagram account that was supposed to be like an old photo. It was like a couple of piles of Cheetos with some stuff sprinkled on them, and he'd signed his name on a piece of paper and written 1988. Because that's what you do when you have an idea, right? Is you, like, sign your name and date it and take a picture with your 1988 roll of film camera. And, you know, like, it was a really terrible attempt. And people obviously called him out on it really quickly because he since deleted the photo. Oh, my goodness. I guess at this point he feels like it's too late to be like, whoops, sorry, guys. I meant Sabrositas. You ever heard of those? (laughs) And as for the memoir and the film... The memoir is still coming out next month. (laughs) Uh, Penguin Random House basically released this sort of neutral PR statement that was like, the book is Montañez's personal recollection of his life. And if that's what people want to hear, then they should check out his book. You know? (laughs) Wow. And nice walk back waddle there, Penguin. Yeah. And the movie, they sort of released a statement that was more like, our intent has always been to tell the true story, but they were really, they didn't want to get involved. I mean, they're already involved is the problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, their choice at this point is to just cancel the whole project or turn it into like an expose documentary of like how this guy lied and was brought down by internet sleuths. No, I mean, what a pivot though to be like, actually, he's a liar. Like, I don't know if that's really the narrative that they'd rather solidify around despite that being the truth. Yeah. And I, you know, I admit it makes me want to try Flamin' Hot Cheetos. I've never had them before. You've never had I haven't, Hot no. I, of wow. course, they seem pretty good, I guess. Everybody the likes them. Way it. was actually present for my very first time trying them because oh. it was during one of our D&D groups. Do you remember this way? Yeah, I brought them. <laughs> yes. He was the one responsible for it. And I was like, huh, I've never tried this. And then after eating like half the bag, I was like, I will never be the same. <laughs> You're like covered in red powder. You're like, give me more. Yep. Yeah, I actually saw somebody comment about this story of this being fake on Twitter, and they were talking about how of all the reveals, this is the one that really gut-punched them. And (laughs) I feel like it's because, in a weird way, Hot Cheetos, at least to me, seem to be part of, like, the fabric of American. 
American culture, which either says something <laughs> significant about America or about me, right. but I'll take it either way. <laughs> well, I mean, what could be more American than somebody claiming credit for something that they didn't actually do? That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This comes from the Daily Beast, and the title is The Kentucky Miner Who Scammed Americans by Claiming He Was Hitler and Plotting Revolt with Spaceships. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is quite the headline. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, about a mail scam that was conducted in 1945, just months after Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his bunker. Mm -hmm. There were rumors that he had actually survived with his mistress, Ava Braun, and escaped the country and was hunkering down somewhere. Like, people spotted him at neo-Nazi gatherings in Colombia, a U-boat <laughs> in Argentina, or with a quote-unquote barely legal girlfriend in Brazil. Uh, some American papers cited rumors that he had taken to digging tunnels in the mountains of southeastern Kentucky. Kentucky. Always where you would want to go if you're a disgraced dictator well, is Kentucky. I mean, I've heard about, like, South America and, like, either Argentina or Chile as being mm -hmm. kind of, like, a hot outpost for Nazi... Like, escaped, yeah. Right, right. Like, that was kind of a stronghold. But Kentucky, maybe they're just mountain folk. <laughs> yeah, and obviously there's little to no evidence of this. But by 1947, a Gallup poll actually found that 45% of Americans believed that Hitler had survived. <laughs> and among them were a group of disgruntled German descendants scattered across the country who, for several months, had actually been corresponding with a man who called himself Furrier Number 1. And I didn't miss <laughs> speak there it's actually spelled f-u-r-r-i-e-r -R -R -E number one <laughs> hitler was a furry who knew <laughs> <laughs> so in hundreds of letters mailed between 1946 and 1956 furrier number one explained <clears throat> that despite the misspelling of his title he was adolf hitler and as it turned out he and Braun had both survived and had set up a camp in Kentucky to plot a new revolt to take over the U.S. and then the world and finally outer space. Of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. And people bought this. They, they believed it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hitler's ambitions, I guess, went to space. And so people just wanted to go there. But he made all these promises. So one of the things he was telling people is that Hitler and his gang of 36,000 German dissidents were actually hard at work digging tunnels to Washington, D.C. in order to aid their revolution. And when he wasn't underground, Hitler apparently got around by way of invisible cab. Yes. And <laughs> together, his huge armies of soldiers and scientists had built 116 secret factories across Kentucky and Idaho to develop a atomic bombs, and, quote, invisible spaceships, which made no sound, unquote. I think if you're going to go in all in on a con, you got to go all in. Like, I, I yeah. respect that. I feel like he owned it. Or, or like, this is the longest pitch for a direct-to-video movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he conned all these people into believing it, but, like, what was he getting out of it? Did they give him money, or was it just the joy of the con? <laughs> yeah, so it was the money. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, usually yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. So everything was going to plan, but Furrier number one needed help in the form of these generous contributions to his cause, actually. All so right. mm -hmm. by 1956, the faux furrer had actually collected close to $15,000 in 1956 money. So adjusted for inflation, that's $140,000. Wow. So in exchange for this financial support, he actually offered prominent positions in the new regime, like the titles <laughs> of uh, Furrier number two and number three. 
Whereas smaller contributors would be thanked with royal palaces and diplomat virgins, which I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, he, he let the creative yeah. juices flow and came up with furrier number two. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's evidence throughout this article that the guy seems pretty fun in his own way. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, on August 11th, 1956, uh, Furrier number one was arrested and charged with three federal counts of using the mail to defraud people. Oh, uh, yeah. It turned out that he was not Hitler, what? but a yeah, I know, right? <laughs> he was actually a 61-year-old African-American coal miner and part-time Baptist preacher named William Henry Johnson. A court witness described Johnson as a tall, full-faced man with a strong, convincing voice, and he'd been duping would-be interstellar neo-Nazi conquerors for a decade. Wow. I mean, doing the Lord's work. And by the way, what does a full <laughs> face actually describe? I don't know. I think he just, some people have strong faces. Yeah, like yeah, a round okay. face, I always imagine. Like a, uh, like a big moon cantaloupe looking thing. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm assuming. It's interesting that actually very little has been published about Will Johnson, despite the ridiculousness of the story. He's been mentioned in a couple almanac-style books and databases and some blogs and occasional tweets. Kevin McQueen actually wrote a book called More Offbeat Kentuckians in 2004, <laughs> and he mentioned Will Johnson, and while trying to do the research, he actually reached out to the Kentucky State Police Archives and the FBI, who told him that they didn't have any record of whether Johnson was convicted or even if he what? went to trial. But the Daily Beast writers did some digging in the archives of various magazines and journals and found that he did go to trial and he was convicted. After his arrest in August of 1956, the Middleborough Daily News reported that he was detained on a $2,500 bond in a county jail in Pineville, Kentucky. They had a brief article titled, Man Disclaims He Is Hitler, uh, which said <laughs> that Johnson had pleaded guilty but denied orchestrating the scheme for personal benefit. Instead, he claimed that he was a private detective working to track down a ring of subversives seeking to set up a new government here, so like a double cross. At the hearing, he elaborates on his defense a little bit, and he held up a shiny new detective badge, as the paper wrote, and told the court that he had been trying to break this case so he could turn it over to the FBI. <laughs> so generous of him to do all that pre-work. Oh, absolutely. So he was actually a postal inspector who played a pivotal role in actually cracking the real case. And he had told the court that he had first heard of the scam a year before, after the death of a G.A. Huber, who was a 70-year-old stonemason in Bristol, Virginia, which was a small border city that extends across state lines into Bristol, Tennessee. When Huber's relatives were going through the Mason's belongings, they had actually found money orderings totaling at least $4,000, and nearly 200 of Johnson's letters in his shack. Ooh. So basically, so, this guy died and his family realized, oh no, he was being scammed for the last couple of years of his life. Let's go figure out who that dude was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I feel like if I were the family, I'd be like, let's just call this one done. <laughs> yeah. but, maybe, you know. maybe don't let dad's legacy be he was scammed by Nazi space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was so, such an imaginative premise. I mean, who wouldn't get sucked into that? It's like a Nigerian prince approaching you, right? Yeah, it, it is very enthralling, I guess, if you're a Nazi. <laughs> 
it makes old people spending all their money on QVC in the last couple of years of their life maybe not look so bad, you know? There's yeah. worse ways you could blow your money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but so, we don't we don't know if he went to jail or because he was convicted, but did he actually get punished? Yes. So one of the key pieces that ended up in his conviction was actually the use of handwriting experts, which I didn't realize they had back in the 1950s. But it turns out that the post office was familiar with Johnson, and he actually landed himself in probation for a different mail fraud conviction where he had posed as an attorney and taught a recently remarried widow how to forge records and reinstate her unmarried widow checks in exchange for a cut of the profits. So Johnson did ultimately make a handwritten confession once these two cases were tied together. And he did try to claim that he had graduated from a Chicago Secret Service correspondence school. (laughs) So, like, this guy is going all the way down into it. But eventually he confesses and he writes this handwritten confession note where he agrees to confess if the case details won't be published in the press. But the justice can't guarantee that, so he ultimately refuses, and he is sentenced to three years of time in a federal prison for each count, but to be served concurrently. So actually relatively lenient. Yeah, and if none of it went into the press at the time, effectively, then as soon as he got out, he could just start back up again. Because that's what people like this do. They don't be like, oh, okay, I got caught. I'll never try again. Right. Right. They just learned how to optimize in the next iteration. Yeah. So after the trial did end, and I assume after his conviction and time in prison, he never showed up in any local papers again. Hmm. And uh, since then, his birth certificate, death certificate, marriage certificate, nor obituary have ever been found. Yeah, he just changed his name. He's in space, guys. (laughs) Of course he's in space That's true. That's true. I I was wrong. He might have actually been telling the truth the whole time, and now he's in space. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's a great point. (laughs) (laughs) next link next link all right well this one comes from sam jones at the guardian and it's got a a suitably exciting title spanish archaeologist sentenced for faking basque finds oh no yeah this this actually happened all the way back in 2006 but the court case has just sort of finally wrapped up and gotten all of its stuff together basically in the the roman city of valea which is near the basque city of vitoria in spain was underground. It's been a dig site for a while. And one of the archaeologists working on it in 2006 presented some amazing finds. His name was Eliseo Gill, and he supposedly found pieces of third century pottery that had been engraved with one of the first depictions of the crucified Christ, along with Egyptian hieroglyphics. So like having both of those things together was sort of a really amazing cultural thing, had it been Mm real. And (laughs) he also found some that had Basque words that predated the earliest known written examples of the language by 600 years. So being an archaeologist, he sort of knew what fake finds would be the coolest and uh, Ah. get him the most attention. Mm -hmm. And it was a full year before an expert committee really kind of got around to examining them and saying, hold on, (laughs) there are some really big problems with some of these pieces. And I shouldn't really have complimented his knowledge as an archaeologist because the errors that he made are just grotesque. Oh, no. They said they found some pieces of modern glue on this supposed pottery (laughs) that some of the scratchings in the writings referred to non-existent gods. 
and even worse, to the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, who obviously oh. would not have been alive uh. at that time. <laughs> uh, he, they said that the crucifixion scene bore the abbreviation R.I.P., which at the time would have called into question Christ's resurrection and divinity, and they never would have done that. That's just not <laughs> part of it. Uh, and they said, you know, the name of the Roman god Jupiter was spelled with a J, which back then the letter did not exist. All Roman words with the J sound started with an I. And <laughs> it was just sort of a mess. And one professor of prehistory in Madrid said, how has something like this been taken seriously for so long? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, they caught him and he was brought up on fraud charges in Spain, both Eliseo Gil and his collaborator Ruben Serdan. They were found guilty. They were fined 12,500 euros. Serdan was sentenced to 15 months in prison and Gil oh. was sentenced to two years and three months. But oh my gosh. Neither one of them is probably actually going to prison because yeah. apparently a little part of Spanish law says that if a defendant has no prior convictions, any sentence under two years is automatically suspended unless and until they screw up again. Uh, oh. And while Gil's total was over two years, it was actually multiple convictions that were each under two years. And so they all sort of count as under two years. And uh, there was a third collaborator, Oscar Escribano. And he took a plea deal, which I think implies that he testified against the other two, for a one-year sentence and an undisclosed fine. Nonetheless, even up to the end, he insisted it was nothing more than a joke. Uh, which, you know, can't you take a joke? Where's your <laughs> sense of humor? Yeah, and and I suppose that does kind of get them out of the question of how was this so bad. Like, maybe they thought, of, well, people will obviously realize it's bad. But then why would you spend so much energy on what is, quote unquote, a joke? It just, it, you know. Maybe there was like a YouTube video that they were planning for this. No. Hopefully they've learned their lesson and uh, maybe they can use some of the underground uh, radar stuff next time instead and won't have to <laughs> dig up their nonsense. What, that's right. It would have saved everybody a bit of heartache, right? That's right. And a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. I won't varnish the headline because it says it all. Cheese photo leads to Liverpool drug dealers' downfall. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> like a photo of cheese. Yeah, like a okay. photo of cheese. He basically posted a photo on an encrypted messaging service called EncroChat. And that chat platform had been cracked by the police. So Detective Lee Wilkinson of Merseyside Police said he went by the name Toffee Force. That was his online handle. <laughs> and he was involved in supplying large amounts of drugs. So the detective said that his love of Stilton cheese ultimately led to his downfall after his palm and fingerprints were analyzed and it was established they belonged to Stuart. So if you want to see the picture, you can. It's remarkably blurry for what it is. You can see some of the palm lines and things like that, but huh. it's a nice fusion of old school fingerprinting ID right. techniques and new school digital photos on encrypted chat platforms. So mm -hmm. be aware. That's right. You go showing off your cheese, man. That's You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I will admit that I thought that this was going to be like he somehow imprinted his fingerprint onto the cheese and they did oh. some incredible <laughs> reverse, you know, engineering to pull it off. But, uh, you know, this is good, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a picture of his hand works as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And he probably wasn't expecting something like that to happen. I mean, it was in, hey, this is my favorite cheese, a mature blue Stilton, which if you're a cheese eater, that's a bold choice. Yeah, it's a yeah, stinky. It's a stinker. It's yeah. a super stinker. But only the finest for Carl Stewart. Hope he can get some aged Stilton in prison. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> they they got to smuggle that.
that in, you, it makes it even stinkier. You don't want it. Like, <laughs> well, then he's undoubtedly got the connections he'll need to feed his cheese habit. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one is a little long, but it is worth it. This comes from the New York Times. It's called Inside eBay's Cockroach Cult. The Ghastly Story of a Stalking Scandal. Ugh. So it's a story of corporate espionage taken to an absurd degree. There were two executives and seven employees implicated, but the only one who talked to the New York Times is the youngest employee, Veronica Zay, who was 25 at the time. The department in question at eBay headquarters is called Global Security and Resiliency. They were created to track so-called persons of interest who might pose a threat to the company. So already, like, it's kind of a paranoid-sounding hmm. department. On the other hand, a woman did shoot three people at YouTube for some sort oh. of imagined grudge yeah. in April of 2018. So, you know, it's kind of maybe understandable. That was sort of mm-hmm. the general attitude in the department was, we're here to save lives. Like, it was very yeah. intense, and it seemed to attract a certain type of personality. So, like, the head of the department was named James Baugh. He claimed that he used to be in the CIA and or sometimes he said his wife was currently in the CIA. Like it was a little questionable, but he would stage Mm. drills for the employees. Like he would suddenly text everyone that there was an active shooter on the second floor. Oh, that's delightful. Yeah. Like he was a little bit of a horrible, horrible boss. (laughs) They said one time he found a knife in the communal barbecue area and made this big deal about how a deranged person could take this and use it to hurt someone, which he demonstrated by stabbing an office chair and then leaving oh. the knife in the chair for months as a reminder to everybody. Okay, so, that's not the person you have in charge. Right. Yeah, this guy already was was showing problems, but it got it gets way worse, trust me. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Ball loved to demonstrate his philosophy through film clips. He would routinely call everyone into the conference room and show, for example, the scene from American Gangster where Denzel Washington kind of calmly executes a man to make a point. Or even the bit from Meet the Fockers about a retired CIA agent's, quote, circle of trust. Like, that was a phrase he would use all the time. And people were like, are you aware that that's a comedy? Like, it's not serious. (laughs) And uh, Miss Zay said that on at least five separate occasions, they were shown a clip from the TV show Billions where an executive sneers to a subordinate, you don't try to be loyal, you just are. (laughs) Yeah. They said once a guard pulled all of the analysts' personal possessions out of their lockers and dumped them in trash bags to teach them that they could not expect privacy at work. This was followed by a clip about locker discipline from the Vietnam film Full Metal Jacket. What? Over 18 months, global security and resiliency fired and replaced at least a dozen analysts. Everyone was afraid for their job all the time. It was just a really intense working environment. Hmm. So then they had many, quote, persons of interest on their list. But in 2019, one pair in particular started to stick out. It was a married couple from Massachusetts named David and Ina Steiner. And they ran this very small, kind of inconsequential blog called E-Commerce Bytes, which was a trade publication for a variety of online retailers, including eBay and Etsy and Amazon, et cetera. It really wasn't meant to just be trashing eBay all the time. I mean, basically, their only sin was that sometimes their articles weren't entirely favorable to eBay. But the new CEO targeted them and was like, I want these guys out. I hate them. For example, in April of 2019, Ina wrote about the new CEO's salary of $18 million, mildly suggesting that it might be coming at the expense of payments to small sellers. And right after that came out, the chief communications officer texted to the CEO, we are going to crush this lady. So <laughs> they picked her out wow. real fast. They very clearly had a problem with her. And the fact that they have these guys' texts kind of tells you there were subpoenas involved and <laughs> it got dirty. 
So and like even when she wrote nice things like how the new CEO had promised greater protection from fraudulent buyers, the chief communications officer who was named Wenig wrote, quote, shockingly reasonable to the CEO named Weimer, who replied, I couldn't care less what she says. She <gasps> is a biased troll who needs to get burned down. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And he signed off with whatever it takes. <gasps> so, like, I don't know where this obsession came from, but it was multiple people because there was the CEO, there was the communications officer, there was the head of global security. And that that guy was the one showing the film clips. His head was already filled with weird movie scenes and fantasies of working for the mm -hmm. CIA. So he devised a white knight strategy, which was they were going to harass the Steiners from a fake account designed to look like a disgruntled seller and then let eBay swoop in and save them. Right. So now they would have a more favorable mm. view of eBay, I suppose, which is just a really backwards and weird way to look at it. Like you're somehow going to convince them, oh, now I'll write nice articles about eBay for the rest of our lives. So they, dodgy. Yeah. So they started small, which is to say they mailed a pig mask covered in blood to the Steiners. Oh. And then tweeted, do I have your attention now from the fake harasser? What the? Okay. Wow. Yeah, this oh, yeah. mob mentality thing. It, yeah. I mean, culture kind of trickles down from the top. So it's not a surprise <laughs> that like some of the foot soldiers within the company would do this. But that is just, I mean, when you say cinematic, that almost does this a service it does not deserve. Right. It's not not good enough to be cinematic. <laughs> so the Steiners subsequently received packages containing a funeral wreath and a book called Grief Diaries, Surviving the Loss of a Spouse. They received fly larvae. They received a box of live cockroaches. Subscriptions to porn magazines in the husband's name were sent to neighbors' houses. They got <gasps> pizzas at 4 a.m. Somebody posted Craigslist ads announcing swingers parties at the Steiner's home address. Meanwhile, Baugh and two of his analysts flew to Massachusetts to try to put a GPS tracker on the Steiner's car. Like it, what the it went way, way overboard, especially if you go look at this newsletter. Like, they're nobody. I mean, you know, good for them for living their dream and writing a newsletter, but oh my God. Right. And the Steiners, they had no idea who was doing this. They hadn't even connected it to the fact that they write this little newsletter about a variety of retailers. So right. ultimately, the wow. harassment, they called the police, who quickly traced the rental car to Veronica Zay and the gift card that was used to purchase the pizzas to a place that was right next to eBay's headquarters. So oh, immediately, they're like, OK, we've got an instant lead on this. We know where we're going. eBay's lawyers were contacted. They started questioning the global security department going like, hey, guys, you know, what's going on? <laughs> Can you imagine how pissed off those lawyers <laughs> oh, must yeah, have been? yeah, especially corporate uh, lawyers. Like, uh, yeah, they were not happy. And then, of course, global security engaged in a massive cover-up. They sent these performative emails to each other where they acted like, oh, my gosh, we've just discovered this harassing Twitter user. They also discussed, apparently, enlisting a, quote, friendly cop in the Bay Area to give falsified security footage to the Massachusetts PD, which would give alibis oh to the global security team that had gone to Boston. Like, Oh, my it, God. These people had absolutely gone off the rails. And then as soon as the actual police interrogation started, everyone caved. They all <laughs> admitted, like, <laughs> every single person was like, oh, yeah, man, we all did this and it was crazy. And we don't know why we did it. Like, our bosses told us to and we were afraid for our jobs and we just kind of went along. And then as soon as, you know, the House of Cards starts crumbling, Baugh texted the two executives who had been egging him on saying if there's any way to get some top cover, that would be great. They did not respond. No kidding. Yeah. Everyone was fired, which is nice. The executives did get fired after their texts came out. But they both claimed that they were speaking off the cuff. They never actually instructed the team to do anything illegal. 
and it sort of follows up on all these people who are now facing up to five years per count, which is quite, <laughs> they did a lot of things to these poor people. Yeah. And, uh, wow. you know, they're all having a hard time getting jobs again. They said when the case became public, which was like a year after it actually happened, Veronica Zay was already working at a new job. So when it became public, she got fired from that job. Meanwhile, <laughs> the two executives, they already have new jobs. Wenig sits on the board of GM whose CEO uh, uh, stated that the cyberstalking scandal was regrettable, but didn't involve any GM business. So they're unreal. Not, yeah. I mean, also completely predictable when you think about how mm -hmm. sociopaths are rewarded. I am furious right now. <laughs> well, yeah. just think, think, think about the pig mask. That's, that's not even funny. That's like I know, a yeah. scene out of The Godfather. Maybe they couldn't find a horse mask, so they went up with a pig mask. Like, all of this, it, like, they took all of these strategies from fictionalized mob and criminal activity. Right, and said to themselves, this is the way to go. Oh and, my gosh. Well, and then you're not going to like this part either. Weimer is now the CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Silicon Valley. And the PR notice about his hiring said that he would do for these disadvantaged children whatever it takes. <laughs> it just, I, yeah, I mean, the, the lack of self-awareness is crazy. Well, it's not just the self-awareness. It's the accountability mm -hmm. from what you would hope to be other decent people in positions of leadership. <laughs> I, I'm just, oh, this country. That's so deranged. <laughs> Well, on that Sorry, note, I'm still processing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do have a few more of these lined up, so hopefully we'll have some opportunities in the future to share those with you. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damn interesting week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.